Welcome to the Danny Goldberg Rock and Rolls Hour. In this podcast, Danny shares his longtime connection to the path of the heart, as well as his very engaged life of social activism. If you are interested in supporting Danny's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Danny. Okay, hi. This is Danny Goldberg, and this is Rock and Rolls. And this is a special podcast for me because my guest is my sister, but she's not here in her role as my sister. She's here as Dr. Rachel Goldberg. She's the Assistant Professor of Peace and Conflict Studies at DePaul University. She's the editor of an anthology that was just published called Faith and Practice in Conflict Resolution Toward a Multidimensional Approach. And in addition to editing it, uh, she uh, wrote uh, one chapter and co-wrote another. And uh, it is that is the topic that I really wanted to talk to you about, Rachel, is, is your... Um, uh, is your work and in particular your thought process behind this book. And um, when I, as a, as a layman, I think of conflict resolution, I associate it with uh, peaceniks and reconciliation. And it would seem um, at a distance that spirituality would be congruent and harmonious with conflict resolution, but I guess in terms of the way it's practiced, it has not been. So why don't you talk a little bit about the general uh, playing field of conflict resolution that led you to want to publish this book? Um, the history of spirituality in peace studies is very deep and very old. You know, the two icons that we talk about the most, Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., were people for whom their spirituality was integral to their peace building and their peacemaking and the methods that they used. Conflict resolution is a field that focuses on practices and skills that people can develop and use often professionally to intervene in conflicts. And I think as the field tried to professionalize itself, it hooked up with norms from the legal field with which it was working that emphasized uh, not conflict of interest. And this goes back to enlightenment thinking about the idea that good knowledge comes from people that are objective and neutral and separate and other also included in that whole body of thinking is separating the mind and the body and emotions and spirituality and all that stuff makes you biased and wrong. So so kind of the role model was like a judge? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um and 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 how is this um give some examples before we go more into that conversation of Conflict resolution, I think I think of like Camp David of Jimmy Carter, also somebody who was deeply rooted in spirituality uh, and, and a conflict that had spiritual overtones, even though it was essentially about, you know, more military and political issues. But I, I, I think of I think of uh, labor negotiations. Um, but what give, give kind of the broad playing field of the kind of conflicts that conflict resolution practitioners, is that a word? That's the word. Uh, get involved with. Sure. 
Um, conflict resolution is the field, the study, and the practice of how you intervene in people's conflicts to help make them better. And that includes everything from interpersonal to international to global. And uh, it's a very broad interdisciplinary field. It covers a tremendous amount of ground. People that are trained to do this do everything from the barking dog conflict with your neighbor to two kids on the playground fighting over whatever there's a wide range of things that kids can fight over on the playground well wait somebody somebody somebody's going to call in a practitioner to resolve a problem between two kids on a playground that would be two very wealthy families uh there's peer mediation programs that work in schools that train kids to be peer mediators to work with other kids they even at this point have preschool conflict resolution programs Uh uh-huh so literally like pretty much anything that isn't therapy uh, that deals with deep-seated emotional basis of conflict, and that, that isn't the law. We do everything in between. Hmm. Okay, so um, how is the uh, your approach uh, different from the way it's normally done? Go into a little more detail about what 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 you are trying to urge your colleagues to aspire to. Okay, so. In piggybacking on law to make ourselves a legitimate, really Olavio professional field, we borrowed all these norms that you have to be neutral, and we would train our mediators to be neutral. And of course, you don't want to have a mediator in the middle of your conflict that says, you know, dude, I'm totally taking your side, and that person is a total ass, right? You don't want that. Right. That would probably end the process, right? That would be bad, right? Yeah. On the other hand, the claims of neutrality can be incredibly problematic. So there's this woman, Christina Rack, that did this really beautiful piece of research comparing the experiences of white complainants and Hispanic complainants in a mediation system and in a court system. And the Anglo, I mean, the um, Latino norms of fairness mean that you want to make a deal with people. There are things in that culture that push you to make concessions early on, which is perceived by the white people as weakness and exploited. And the white mediators, if they don't know this is going on and are just trying to be super neutral, not only the research shows not only didn't know it was going on, but made it worse. So us pretending to be neutral when we're not can make things much worse. So for years I've been arguing that this is a bankrupt problematic idea. There's all kinds of research coming from Foucault and social constructivism and um, postmodernism that's... Okay, hold, hold on. This is a, a podcast network of uh, people that may not know what these terms mean. So explain what constructionism and modernism and Foucault, who are all those people? I, I was just going to go there. Um, so anyway, these are all people that are complaining about these old objectivist, you know, in, um, enlightenment thinking norms that only good knowledge comes from being separate and other and different and neutral. For one thing, all of those old norms were also used to disenfranchise people of color and women by claiming that we put our bodies together with our minds so we were just too emotional and irrational to be able to make decisions on our own. And as you may or may not know, I can't remember if mother ever had this conversation with you, our mother was not allowed to have a credit card when she first married our father because women were considered to be too irrational to be able to make financial decisions. So like in our family, in our lifetime, well, I guess a little bit before our lifetime, that was the case. So it's not that long ago that these ideas that you should be separate, other, neutral, 
were shaping the lives of women and shaping the lives of people of color, and they probably still are. And so there's been all these movements against that, saying this is problematic. And part of what I'm saying in my book is not only is it problematic from all those reasons, but it's problematic because we are whole uh, animals. You know, we don't separate out our emotions from our thoughts, from our bodies, from our spirituality in any decision that you ever make. You can. So do you bring this non-objective truth by being candid and open about who you are so that both sides in a conflict know who you are more or, or uh, how, how do you how do you do this and, and be a complete person and still maintain credibility with people who are in dispute? Totally cool question. Um, that's exactly the kind of stuff that we're grappling with. So early on, I argued, yeah, it would be much more useful for my clients if I'm more transparent about my biases and say things like, well, right now this sounds like you two are cross purposes, but maybe, you know, that's my, perce- my perception and it's wrong. Tell me what you think is going on. So for me, part of my argument is that as an intervener, I should be more transparent about that and essentially give the clients the license to call me on it. Right. But, of course, there's lines where you, you know, if you go too far that way, you're imposing somebody on people. So what I did is I did research into how does psychology do this. Psychology never made this claim that they were neutral. They were always too smart for that. They knew that long ago. And so what psychology does instead is that they work on the therapist learning to have lots of self-awareness about the ways in which their own stuff can get in the way of the client. And also learning to have good boundaries. And the sort of litmus test there for a therapist, as far as I've been able to tell from my research in that area, is that whatever comes out of your mouth, if it's going to forward the goals of the client in terms of healing themselves, it's worth saying. And if it's not, you don't say it. So you don't share anything about yourself that isn't helping them tell their story. So the only things you share about yourself are things that help them do their work or help them tell their story. And you do it in such a way that they can call you on it or set it aside and you're not imposing your values or your beliefs on them. And what about um, there's a tradition of uh, religious people um, resolving conflicts. Uh, I always think of rabbis back in the day. Uh, They were the resolver of conflicts. Is there any lessons from that tradition that are applicable to the kind of work that you do? Absolutely. Um, the Every culture has always had somebody that stands in the middle of a conflict and helps people work it out. It's often the spiritual leaders. There's a long tradition of that in lots and lots and lots of cultures. The current conflict resolution field and peace building field as it's constructed, draws a lot from Quaker meetings, from Quaker processes, from Mennonite, Anabaptist, Church of the Brethren, Peace Churches. Um, There's lots of places where those norms and techniques and skills have kind of come into the field. Well, talk about some of those traditions. Let's say someone is an employer and they have a conflict of two people who work for them. They don't necessarily... Uh, you know, uh, have the budget or the context to bring in an outsider, how could they be more conscious in helping resolve a conflict in in, in a situation? What are are some of those traditions bring that you use? Uh, Like you say that like the Quaker tradition to start with, you're, you're saying, do you use that tradition in your work? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I used to do alternatives to violence trainings in maximum security prisons. Actually, I need to get back to that. Um, and there's folks doing it in Indiana now. Um, but that is a Quaker system. So a lot of the original things that I learned before I was a professor, I learned from that program, among other programs. So there's a tremendous ethic in the alternatives to violence work and in the Quaker meeting house norms of um, not imposing your own agenda on people, but allowing the agenda to come from the group and creating processes that help people elicit and come up with their own answers, which is deeply embedded into all of the kinds of conflict resolution that I do. There's other forms like the legal system or arbitration where an outside person is imposing an answer on people. But the work that I do is all about helping people come up with their own answers. And for me, that's a spiritual undertaking. To help people come to their own agreement. So you're not imposing an agreement on people. Your job is to facilitate people coming to an agreement with each other? Yep. Can you give any, without being indiscreet, maybe you could change the names or something or disguise it, but are there any examples you could give? Because this is a little uh, in the intellectual area. It's a little abstract for me, and I'm thinking yep. maybe. Uh, so I, I like. could you explain like an example or two of, of how this has worked? You mean what it would look like to bring your whole self to the table as a mediator? If there's any example, yeah, that you could give. Um, there's wonderful case studies. Or a hypothetical would be fine, too. Just just an example. There, I mean, one of the, the goals of this book was to go beyond theory and start bringing practice in. So there's chapters by different practitioners to talk about different things that they did. Um, I'll tell you... Uh, one of the stories from the book is from an intervener that does an environmental public policy work. And she her area of research is emotions. So this story is about how to pay attention to emotions. And she's also a social activist. So she believes that emotions are the indicator of the location in a conversation or a person where real transformative change is possible. So she was working with a, a government agency that had a boss and an employee that had been fighting and they'd had various problems going on with the different levels of um, how people worked with each other and pay and promotion, all that stuff. She was working through all that stuff. And at the end of that, it was clear from the feeling in the room because she was paying attention to her body and her emotions that even though they kind of crossed all the T's, they weren't there. So they were like, yeah, we're done. But nobody moved. And during their conversation, one thing had come up that seemed to be emotionally charged. One of the parties had been sick the week before. Mm. And the boss, who was a man, had called this woman at home. And she had gotten really angry about that and said, listen, you don't get to call me at home. And he said, listen, this workplace is a family. You were taken away to the emergency room. I wanted to know how you are. And she said, we're not a family. This is not a family. This is a workplace. And that had had a lot of emotional charge around it, and it wasn't clear why. So the Joy Meeker, the person who wrote this particular chapter, did what's called an individual session, talked to both of them one-on-one before bringing them back together. And when she was talking to them one-on-one, it came out that the woman had – her partner had been in the military and had been in the military under don't ask, don't tell. And so for them, their personal life 
had a loadedness to it. Mm, mm. And invading their personal life or talking about their personal life had a loadedness to it that it didn't for a heterosexual white male. And so she asked this woman, can I talk, you know, can I tell him that this is what's going on? And she got permission to sort of start a conversation between the two of them where the guy started to understand why she didn't want that particular kind of communication and actually started to learn how to be an ally to her. And Joy could have just walked away when they said they were done. But she paid attention to the emotions in the room and the body language of these people that they were still sitting there, that there was some work that was undone. Mm. And it was work that touched this social activist, larger structures stuff. And so she shifted a little bit in her role to do a le- doing a little education with the male supervisor to help him start to understand what was going on for this person and the ways in which she could feel disempowered by what he saw as kindly behavior. And they actually started to have a productive conversation about how to be allies in the workplace. So that's an, uh, that's an example of how to bring your emotions in. In terms of spirituality, some of the coolest work, and there's a website associated with the book that's part of my consulting website that just went live yesterday um, that has these case stories on it. There's a woman called E. Okay, and what is the website called? What is the address of it? Uh, resilience.com. So that's R-M-G-R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-C-E. Dot com. And that has uh, some stories uh, that are compatible with this conversation? Or, yep. Yeah. And, and one of them is an interview with Elena Miralem, who's doing amazing work in the Middle East, bringing activists together, Palestinian and Israeli activists who are burnt out being activists and feel like they have no partner for peace and bringing them together in an explicitly spiritual context so that they can talk about the importance of what they do with more depth and passion and heart. And what she's doing is so interesting. She brings a Native American elder in. So they go through Native American traditional processes that are not Muslim and not Jewish. Right. So they have space to respect the um, spiritual needs of the parties without being anyone's particular territory. Right. been incredibly powerful work that's been really, really well received and deeply rejuvenating to very burnt out activists. So I just want to shift to another line of thought and maybe we'll then come back to other examples. But as we're speaking um, and these podcasts, there's usually a delay between when we have the conversation when they go up. It's usually a few weeks later. But even a few weeks from now, it's still going to be election season in the Mm -hmm. United States. And as we're speaking, we're right in between the Republican and Democratic conventions when when you have, uh, you know, two groups of passionate people uh, who who really hate each other um, or hate each other's uh, values or their images. Uh, I mean, I am not neutral about this. I'm a I'm a and I know you. I don't think you are either. I mean, I'm, I'm a liberal Democrat. I was for Bernie. Now I'm for Hillary. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, so I'm not pretending to be objective about this. But I do feel a tremendous uh, pain at the um, distance between so many people that I know and these millions of other people who somehow have convinced themselves in the 
sort of Trump world that that what they're saying is moral is right is um, uh, you know is 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 you, you know and they have this loathing for liberals and people like us that 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 is a mirror of the way we feel about them um, and uh, you know I was I, I know that you're somebody who admires the work of George Lakoff who I also uh, read sometimes and and for those who don't know he's an author and a and an academic who has studied uh, both psychological uh, issues in politics and how issues are framed to touch those. And and he writes about the models that people have in a family of either the uh, nurturing mother or the authoritarian father. And, and he says that a lot of how people react politically seems to have to do with what their notion of, of, of a family authority is. And, and, and um, how do you cross that divide uh, in a way that is less uh, polarizing and ugly in, 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 in writ large in a society? I mean, obviously, you can't resolve the conflict between the right and the left in the United States. No one's but 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 just theoretically. Uh, how do you think about that polarization? Because your whole work is about trying to find common ground. Um, after the second Bush election, <coughs> I was teaching in Maryland, and uh, there was a series of dialogues that were created called Let's Talk America. And the idea was to get people together in living rooms and in schools and in churches to talk across political difference. And so for my cross-cultural class, what I actually did is I went out of my way to bring together people from the political left and the political right to talk to each other in dialogue. And I found, because I know that the challenge can be, you know, people who are like you. So I reached right. out to the... Um, Baptist church in town, uh, and they were very conservative, uh, politically right. They taught creationism, and I found this was in it's in Indiana. No, this was in Maryland. This was in Maryland. Okay, got it. And I found a, a teacher who worked in this high school that was willing to design these workshops with me. So we created a dialogue where he, you know, networked through his people and I networked through my people and the students brought their people and we created dialogues between the political right and the political left. Um, in, in my experience, all human beings have the capacity to make each other into dehumanized others. And when we do that, we are capable. That is where we do the most horrible atrocities, you know, human beings ever do. So when I teach my introductory, my introductory conflict studies class, the kind of story arc of the class is to start with how do we dehumanize each other and we talk about the Rwandan genocide to how do we come back from that? And we end with... Um, stories of hope and things that have gone better and nonviolent resistance and South Africa and stuff like that. And, um, imperfect, although all human efforts are, we have both a history of, of, as a species of going to the places where we can commit a Holocaust and going to the places where we come back into community and can live with each other. We have the capacity for both of those things. The field that I'm part of is really good at, individual transformation. So one of the kind of famous stories about South Africa, and I will screw up the names because I suck at that, but one of them was Ramaphosa, and I can't remember the name of the other guy, but there was an ANC guy and an Afrikaner guy who were brought together to have an individual um, 
opportunity to rehumanize each other and build a relationship. And the guy who was their host, his daughter, like, broke her arm or something, and he had to run to the emergency room. So these two guys were going fishing, and they were left on their own at this guy's boat, and one of them had never fished before, and he got a fish hook caught in his finger, and the other one <laughs> had to pull it out. It's like Androcles and the lion. And right. they actually... <laughs> They actually started to see each other as human beings, and that communication chain was one of the critical ones that was space for a lot of the ability to create conversations across differences that happened in South Africa early on. Um, I think there are always those people, and I think there are always those transformations. The challenge for my field, I know how to do that, right? I know how to bring individuals together who are wildly different and help them have a real conversation so they rehumanize each other. The challenge is scaling that up. So, like, they've had a million of these in Israel-Palestine where they've had high schoolers from Palestine and high schoolers from Israel get together and they have this meaningful interaction. They get to like each other and they go back and they're in the same dumb situation, They've had mid-level political folks do it, and it doesn't necessarily feed down to the bottom. So the question that our field is grappling with is how do you like make that face-to-face transformation scale up? And my belief is that we have the capacity to rehumanize each other if we just hang out and have real conversations with each other. So I think if we made the space to have real dialogue and real communication across difference, not posing for an audience, not selling an agenda, but talking about what you really believe and how meaningful it is to you, that we're capable of having real democracy. Well, Every time I do the cross-cultural class, I do an abortion dialogue. I do an abortion dialogue every year. Right, right. And um, one of the things I think about is um, that people in different uh, realms of our country are exposed to, to radically different sources of information. And, uh, you know, uh, I grew up, uh, as you did, in a family that got the New York Times every day. And there's a whole kind of group of media that we've gotten used to. Um, and, and, I, and I remind myself that, you know, there's a majority of, of the country doesn't read the New York Times, doesn't listen to NPR, doesn't probably read the books that I read, um, and uh, doesn't really look at any of the conventional news sources and yet they're human beings. They have an ethical construct, some of which, some of them, I'm sure, are good people or bad people within their society, more compassionate or less compassionate, uh, more prone to problem solving or less. But if they're operating on a completely different set of facts or pseudo facts, um, I wonder how one bridges that. I used to give the example of um, uh, in the Gulf uh, War, um, the second Gulf War that George W. Bush launched after uh, 9-11, I think there was some research showing that uh, 65 or 70 percent of the people who listened to Fox or watched Fox News thought that it was Saddam Hussein who attacked us on 9-11. And, uh, you know, if I thought Saddam Hussein had attacked us on 9-11, I probably would have thought about that war differently. I mean, I'm a pacifist who's been against all the wars of my lifetime, but I was also in New York City on 9-11, and, and I, I, didn't, I was not opposed to the idea of, of, of attacking the specific uh, encampments of people who were involved with that attack because I didn't want them to attack us again. 
And uh, I would imagine that some of the people who were Fox viewers who thought that Saddam Hussein actually launched that attack um, were, were, were coming from a place completely different from the rest of us who knew for sure that he did not launch that attack. Um, I wonder how much of these differences are rooted in, 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 um, in a completely different set of assumptions about what the truth is. One of the kind of threads through all my research has been narrative. How, uh, and I'm, right now I'm doing this article on, on um, narrative mediation, and it gets at the ways in which we tell ourselves into stories of conflict and have to write ourselves out of stories of conflict. Um, there's an example I just did a conference presentation on last year with a friend of mine that did some great work with the generals in uh, Burma, Myanmar. Uh, they were working on um, getting prepared for being part of a democratic government. And I don't want to get too much into the specifics of that because I can't remember for sure what she empowered me to say and not to say. But part of what she did is she had somebody come in and work with them who does narrative mediation to help them think about the way the stories they told about their roles as generals was getting in the way of their ability to imagine the work they needed to do as as rebel generals as part of a democratic government. And I think our media, the way it plays out now, works to seal off narratives so they can't grow and expand um, in ways that make our country more and more and more divided. Can you? Um, I, I don't know what you mean by seal yeah. off narratives. Could you yeah, expand I, on that idea? Yeah, totally. Um, I think Fox News media, as an example, which you brought up, reinforces a number of themes and tells a lot of stories as though the stories are very straightforward with clear edges and we know what's going on in ways that reinforce people not to examine the ambiguities, the complexities, the questions, the debates that we're not sure and that's sealing off a narrative. When you seal off a narrative, you feel stronger. You feel more sure in your opinion. You feel less insecure. And um, so people like doing that. They try and say, oh, I know what's going on here. She was a total bitch. She just hates me. Um, that's the end of the story. But when I sit them down together, they realize she's going through a divorce, she was stressed, she didn't know what was going on, you completely misinterpreted it. Yeah, she hates you now because you just did 12 awful things to her, but actually at the beginning, they, you just misunderstood each other. I mean, that's the work of conflict resolution is to take these sealed off stories and break them up so you can start to see there's multiple interpretations, there's other ways of understanding things, there's complexities and ambiguity that give you new perspectives. That's a lot of what I do. Our news system works really hard in some of these cable news programs to simplify answers and problems to the extent that you're kind of insulated from some of that in ways that make people feel really safe, but don't necessarily give them the ability to interact with people they really disagree with. I think it's also a challenge to figure out how to actually know the truth. Like there's something called the unemployment rate. So we read about the unemployment rate and it's gone down under President Obama. 
But then it turns out that the unemployment rate only measures people who are looking for a job. So that if you have just given up looking for a job, you're in another category that's not measured by the unemployment rate. So that kind of a um, gimmick in statistics, of course, somebody on the right might think, oh, unemployment's not really down. This is being manipulated by somebody who's uh, uh, fudging the numbers uh, and and they're going based on um, what's exactly in their circle of 50 friends. Uh, and similarly, with the rates of uh, violence, um, you know, as far as I believe, I, I believe that crime has gone down uh, substantially in the last 20 or 25 years in the United States based on reading things in the New York Times and from writers and other people that I've decided I can I can trust. And there are other people that obviously are feeling that crime is increasing and that they're feeling less safe. And um, the lack of any uh, credible source of final information seems to actually be um, worse today in the Internet age of fragmented media and the questioning of authority. Uh, and I was a big questioner of authority as a young person. I was against the Vietnam War, and I felt that the people in authority who said it was a good idea were uh, intellectually bankrupt or morally bankrupt. But the questioning of and then you have the questioning of authority of religious institutions based on abuse and other things like that. But uh, the, the the lack of any universally accepted source of truth about certain basic things like um, does cutting taxes on the wealthy actually help people or not? You know, other than the people whose taxes are cut, or um, does um, body cameras on policemen? Uh, uh, you know, result in um, uh, less abusive behavior by policemen or does it result in policemen being more inhibited and less able to solve crimes? Because if you're shot by a criminal or by a cop, you're still shot. The idea is to have less people shot. Um, how do you establish um, in, in, a, in a minor, in, 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 how do you establish an objective truth that at least people who are in a conflict can both recognize is... is um, the a good example for the kind of stuff you're talking about is environmental public policy mediation. Environmental public policy mediation is conflict resolution around a big issue that a whole community has to solve. So um, as an example, let's say there's a city and they have to figure out where to put a toxic waste incinerator, right? Um, and they're making that decision and they've got to find a piece of land that's available, that has drainage that they can use, and blah, 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 blah. And, of course, nobody wants it in their backyard, so that's a huge series of contention. But we still want to use all of our computers, which create toxic waste, so we got to figure this one out. Um, what often happens in environmental conflicts is what's called dueling scientists. So the environmental guys get their scientists that will marshal facts and do research that shows X is never going to be safe and you can't have any of it and don't ever let that happen. And the... Uh, industrial complex folks will get their scientists that will say, no, it's perfectly safe. Here's all these, you know, resources. And uh, the group as a whole in environmental conflict has to make a decision. So they can't make a decision on that science. So what they do is what's called joint fact finding. They actually have to figure out 
who, what are, what kind of criteria are we going to use to decide that this expert is an expert enough to trust? What kind of study do they have to do that we can all believe in? What sort of research questions are they going to have to ask? And they jointly create criteria for the gathering of data that they can all trust. That can be a huge part of the negotiation in an environmental public policy case. How do we go get data we all trust? Right. How do you do it, though? It's like each person picks an expert and then those two people pick a third person or? No, you come up with criteria first. So criteria gets you out of the box of my person versus your person. So you come up with criteria that we want somebody who has like a relevant science degree in this, right? They didn't get a Cracker Jacks box. They actually study this. We want somebody that's accredited in some kind of way that we feel has legitimacy. We want somebody that's worked on these kinds of cases. We want somebody that understands toxicity. We want somebody that understands human health. And you can often put together a panel, right? So you can get a guy that really understands toxicity and a woman that really understands toxic impacts on human health. And you can get another guy that understands how you create the engineering for it. And you get them all together. And your group that has to make this decision asks them all the questions you want to ask. And you can also get a group, and it's often a university group, to do the piece of research you want to do. So the university is getting federal funding. They're not in the pockets of the business. They're not in the pockets of the environmentalists. Everybody else comes up with the research questions and the data, and they go do the research and feed it back to you. The So the trick in in public policy, particularly environmental, is that even with all of that, there's huge areas where you don't know. Like we know that this is somewhat toxic. We don't know how toxic it is. We don't actually know how little of it we need and we disagree. And so you have to, as a group, figure out how are you going to respond to those uncertainties. The challenge with processes where you bring a lot of people together to make a decision is that there's pressure towards the middle. Like everybody has to make compromises. So environmental activists aren't always crazy about these processes because their job is not ever to make any compromises, right? As an activist, you don't want to ever make any compromises. In conflict resolution, everybody has to compromise. So one of the critiques is, does that lead to sort of least common denominator solutions? Um, and yeah, or you can have a false equivalency. I mean, the difference between... Yeah, I want to kill a million people, you want to kill nobody, and therefore we agree to kill half a million people is really not uh, not a good outcome. You, you know, and, and we've seen a lot of that. Um, the way the news media covers elections is very alarming, you know, to a lot of us because they, they, they always want to have uh, a horse race. And so no matter how extreme one of the sides are and how dishonest one of the sides are, they, they want to give them something like 50% uh, credibility, but obviously, if you're trying to resolve a conflict, you've got to have something um, that both people can agree on. Um, how does spirituality come into all of this? A lot of this still sounds very cerebral to me, and I understand it because it, there is the psychological realm, the finding common ground realm, and there is a logic to it. But yet, your book has the word spirituality in it, and I know it's so much a part of your being. How, how do you create a spiritual lane of consciousness into things that, 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 that by definition have to be almost like a, a jigsaw puzzle? 
Yeah, we are not, we don't have perfect answers to that. So there's a group of colleagues of mine and I that want to create this practice moving forward, and we're still working on figuring out exactly what that looks like. Some of the examples in the book are John Paul Litterac, one of the most famous guys in the field, created training for peace builders that part of the training is to think about your vocation on a bigger scale, right? It's a hard job to stand in the middle of warring factions where nobody trusts you and try and help them think about a world where they can coexist. It's a burnout job. So in order to do that job, you have to be called to it Mm. in a really deep way that sustains you beyond the success of any one negotiation because they're not all going to, you know, work in any given day. So he engages students in a reflection about their vocation and he uses walking and talking with him because he feels that that um, was how the great masters taught people, like Jesus and Buddha. They went for walks with people. And he also feels it shifts you from a one-up, one-down to a, what he calls a long-sideness. You're walking with somebody. And he, he uses that in poetic listening, using poetry to help people draw from different parts of themselves in understanding who they are and what they do and what they're called to do. Um, other people in the book, for instance, there's a wonderful chapter by a Buddhist. Uh, I don't actually know if he calls himself a Buddhist or not, but mon- mindfulness is key to his life and his experience. And he talks about, he's a lawyer, how he uses my- mindfulness in his law practice. And it's a great chapter because he, he, he does one of these great brave things for a practitioner that he tells a story about when he screwed up. So he tells a story about working with a particularly irritating uh, other lawyer, completely losing mindfulness and getting really pissed off at this guy, and how he brought himself back into mindfulness. He has a very deep meditation practice, and he practices mindfulness in his daily work. One of the things that I work on is being centered when I go into conflict. If I'm centered, I can help hold that centeredness in the conflict. Um, And I was struck, a colleague of mine told me a story. I can't remember if I used it in the book or not, though I used it in a a presentation once. It was a, a congregation that was trying to figure out their responses to gay marriage. Uh, This was before the Supreme Court decision, and they were a tremendously divided congregation. And what they did was try and make a space. It was one of these peace church groups that have a tradition of making space for all voices. And they made a process where they had space for all voices so that somebody could come into the middle and say their piece, and then they would go out and somebody else would come in and everybody would listen. And there were all kinds of ground rules and group agreements about how to do this. But the person who was leading it, who who I respect just on this particular day, they just weren't centered. He didn't center himself before he went in. And one of the people who was pretty much there to disrupt the practice went into the middle of the circle and just cited every biblical text they could find that they felt reinforced their homophobia. And in, in processing that event afterwards with my colleague, he felt like he didn't respond to it as well as he could have because he wasn't centered. But the other thing that happened is that that person who went in there was completely centered. They knew exactly what they were saying. They were completely um, clear in their body and in their mind and the way they presented themselves. They weren't there in good faith. 
But if you have that kind of stone fall into the pool and you're not centered yourself, it drags you in. And you got to do a lot of work to drag yourself back out and the parties. So being centered yourself, doing something like a meditation practice can help you be an effective conflict practitioner. One of the things I'm talking about with colleagues is using emotional techniques and spiritual techniques to work with parties in the conflict so that they can, for instance, try and stop in the middle of a fight and call on their highest and best self and try and speak from that. Totally would be a good thing in Congress. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, um, I don't... I don't see how you change Congress without changing the public because Congress people are programming themselves from very young age to get elected. And the way the districts are drawn, uh, it's very hard for most of them to deviate from whatever the orthodoxy is. It's about changing the orthodoxy, you know, is, is, uh, is the only way to do things. And, um, there are these weird examples where orthodoxies have changed and gay marriage is certainly one of them. Um, uh, you know, racial uh, integration was one of them when I was young, the, the public opinion changed. It didn't change a hundred percent. And one of the things that the country didn't do after passing the civil rights laws and sort of changing practices of what was acceptable language and looking for minority racial characters in TV shows and things like that, was there wasn't an outreach to sort of the white racist minority. Uh, You know, they were just sort of, uh, I think people like us just sort of said, oh, great, we won. We have a majority. We've we've passed these laws. We've, We've changed these norms. And they were sort of left to feel rejected and left out of, 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 of the society. And I think that's a lot of what we see today in the so-called Trump phenomenon are people who've been, when they talk about this ridiculous, to me, phrase, politically correctness, they just feel that there's a, um, that, that, that there's a condescending uh, attitude toward them because they've been treated as uh, pariahs for all these years rather than somehow any kind of a communication or outreach to them. Um, But I don't exactly know how one can outreach to people and still hold firm to the idea that uh, racism is wrong, sexism is wrong, and and, and so on. But but, uh, I don't think unless there's some ability to communicate with with that uh, 40% of the public who always hates any liberal idea, no matter what it is, or at least a third of the public... If we just leave that alone, that's just too many people to be ignored. Um, yet we can't go back on our core beliefs that we that are our, to, to me, you know, respect for people of all races and all sexual preferences is integral to a moral and spiritual concept. H- how do you how do you communicate with 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 people without uh, going back on your own beliefs? There's. Two sets of undertakings. One set of undertaking is holding community with people around what you can hold community over. Right, right. So, for instance, when I do the abortion dialogue in my classes, and I've actually done it with pro-life and pro-choice activists in the past, um, you don't start with, so, give me your political platform. You start with them as human beings. 
So like the first question that the great life choice dialogues ask people after they just do some warm up and getting to know each other stuff is um, what life experience brought you to your opinion about uh, abortion. And so in my class, when students talk about it, they talk about my brother wouldn't exist Mm. if my mom had gotten an abortion or my mom wouldn't have um, ever been able to get a job. And you know what I mean? So, yeah. so, so then you can't, uh, you can't oversimplify and throw out that person. You have to engage them with the complex full person that they are. And the surprising experience that happens in my classes over and over again every year is that people who think they're about to talk to somebody who hates them, that they could never talk to, they have a lot in common. They care about moms. They care about kids. They find big things that are essential to them that they can connect about. So that's one route. One route is to find mm. common ground that's truly meaningful. Another route is to create what's called a joint narrative. And so another route would be to find ways to create a narrative that holds things in it that we can both live with that includes truths that are different from both of us. So, for instance, I think the big thing that the Trump and Bernie candidacy has been telling us is that there are a lot of people not making it in this country who the Republicans and the Democrats have both been ignoring and sweeping under the rug. And it's bad. Hmm. People are not making it. They're not uh, financially, socially, you know, they're falling off the edge and nobody's saving them. And our system is fundamentally broken in a way that hurts people. And, you know, if you don't take care of that, people will find somebody and somewhere to hook themselves to that they think will help them. And if they pick Bernie or Trump, it doesn't mean, you know, they still don't have the problem. Like the system as a whole is a a broken system. We need a new narrative about what America is about and what democracy is about that doesn't leave a third of our citizens under the wheels of the bus. Okay, well, I think that's a good a good way to end. Uh, the book is called Faith and Practice in Conflict Resolution by Dr. Rachel M. Goldberg. And uh, I thank you so much for doing this, Rach. And uh, let's do another one after the election. Thank you so much, Danny. And okay. this was wonderful. Cool. Bye-bye.